I'm Carl Helliker, and welcome to Book Chat. Today joining us is Dr. Mark Stein from York University in Toronto, Canada, and the author of City of Sisterly and Brotherly Loves, which focuses on the gay community right here in Philadelphia from the years 1945 to 1972. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. It's good to have you here. Um, Mark, let me ask you, do you believe lay and, uh, lesbian and gay history has emerged as an accepted, respected area of historical research? Well, I think yes and no. Uh, publishers certainly have been very interested in gay and lesbian history for the last 10 or 20 years. Uh, think tanks, foundations have been uh, supporting our research, and the reading public seems to be buying our books. Um, but there's still resistance in a lot of colleges and universities to the teaching of gay and lesbian history and to hiring people whose specialty is lesbian and gay history. I did a study for the American Historical Association's Committee on Lesbian and Gay History a few years ago. And unfortunately, it showed that very, very few specialists in gay and lesbian history have been hired by U.S. colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. Do you think your book would be a good introduction for people in general for uh, the study of uh, lesbian and gay history? I think so, and I, I, I like to think so for a few reasons. One is that uh, most works in the field seem to focus on either the men or the women. So there are lots of books uh, that do, say, a gay history of New York, right? Uh, or there's a book uh, widely known that's a lesbian history of Buffalo. Um, but for teachers and for students who are interested in both the women and the men in the community. Um, my book's one of the ones that, that, uh, that I think works. Um, and the other, the other factor is that there, there are some histories that focus on gay activists, the political organizers, the demonstrations, those kinds of campaigns, and other works that focus on social and cultural life, the bars and the restaurants and the clubs and mm -hmm. the nightlife. And there too, I try to cover both areas in my book. And so uh, my hope is that teachers um, in the field will see this as a book that brings together a variety of themes that, that can then um, promote discussion and dialogue in the classroom. Fine. Uh, why did you choose Philadelphia and, and why the years 1945 to 1972? Well, Philadelphia, I guess there's a personal story to it and an and a intellectual rationale. The personal story was I happened to be in Philadelphia and I had come to uh, graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania in uh, 1989, having lived in Boston and Connecticut and New York. Uh, and um, so I was here wanting to stay when it came time to do research for my PhD thesis. And so that's the personal reason. The, the intellectual rationale was that there were a lot of works underway on the gay and lesbian history of places like New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., but no one was working on Philadelphia. So I thought, and unfortunately it proved to be the, the case, that there were interesting stories to be told about Philadelphia um, that would uh, include differences and similarities with other places. Uh, and so I was here and there, were, there was no one else working in the field. So that's, uh, that's why Philadelphia. Why the years 1945 to 1972? Um, some of that reflects, uh, again, there's a personal and an intellectual set of uh, reasons. The personal is, I, I was born in 1963, so I remember the 1970s. And um, when I, I've written as a journalist about the very, very recent past, but when I think like a historian, I, 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 want, I don't want to, um, my personal memories to interfere with the research that I'm doing. So um, that was a personal reason. Um, the intellectual reason is that uh, most gay and lesbian historians have been interested in criticizing the myth that 
there was no gay and lesbian history before the 1969 Stonewall riots in New York City, because the popular myth is that there were there it wasn't possible to lead an openly gay, happy, fulfilling, full life before um, the last three decades of the 20th century. So um, so many of us work on the pre-Stonewall era, um, and. Um, there's a lot to be done about the 1950s and 1960s, so that's really why I, I focus there. Fine. Uh, during this time period, the 1945 to 1972, where were the large gay and lesbian communities, and are they still the same ones that are prominent then, that are prominent now? And do you mean in Philadelphia? In Philadelphia, or in, I, I, in, I'm in sorry, Philadelphia. in Philadelphia, yes. Um, well, the, the book argues that uh, Center City was always the, the favorite place of lesbians and gay men to live and also to go out at night. Um, but uh, to a certain extent, that's also a myth in that uh, it's often believed that that's the only place in Philadelphia where lesbians and gay men congregated residentially. So I show that starting in the, at least as early as the 1950s, but possibly earlier, um, they were congregating in, West, in sections of West Philadelphia and sections of Germantown Mount Airy. Um, and to a lesser extent in other areas like the Art Museum area, Fairmont area, uh, the South Street Corridor, those kinds of places, Queen Village. Um, and in different combinations. So there were different ethnic and racial groups that favored um, one neighborhood or the other. Women seemed to favor Germantown Mount Airy more than Center City. The same would be the case for West Philadelphia. Black lesbians and gay men seemed to have favored West Philadelphia and North Philadelphia because of the the racial demographics of those parts of the city. Um, so one of the thing, one of the other things I try to do in the book is to really account for the differences within the lesbian and gay community so that we don't lump uh, the women and the men together, we don't lump blacks and whites together, um, and, and acknowledge the diversity within the community. Right. Now, of course, we had uh, major gay communities at the time in New York and San Francisco, but how did the Philadelphia community, how was it similar and how was it different from those two better known gay community areas? Well, it's a very difficult question. Uh, the time I was working on my book, there actually were no monographs on New York or San Francisco. And had I, had I really wanted to do a comparative study, I, I don't think I ever would have finished this. Um, the one book that was out on New York City uh, covers the pre-World War II era. So a direct comparison was pretty difficult to make. Um, that said, I, have, I, I could speculate about that. Um, uh, I think, uh, to some extent, the myths are true that New York and San Francisco had much larger, more dynamic, more colorful uh, lesbian and gay worlds. Um, but I wouldn't exaggerate that, right? And as the book argues, there was a lot going on in Philadelphia as well. Um, race and ethnicity, I think, account for a good uh, uh, some of the differences. So there were developments in the Asian American community in San Francisco mm -hmm. that I don't think we would see in New York um, or, or Philadelphia. The black population in Philadelphia was so much larger than in most other American cities um, that I think the, the black gay contribution to both the larger black community and the larger gay community was much more uh, significant. Um, so those would be some of the differences. And then there's geographic factors. Uh, um, Philadelphia Center City is a relatively small and compact area. Within a very short walking distance, you have City Hall, and center of government, the entertainment district with theaters and restaurants and bars, uh, urban parks like Rittenhouse and Washington Squares, and all in a very compact area. And so some have argued, and I believe this, that uh, that, that very much affected um, 
lesbian and gay life, uh, people often, uh, there might have been greater fears in Philadelphia of going out to a gay bar because that gay bar might only be two blocks away from where your, your, uh, a member of your family worked downtown or where you might pass someone uh, who you knew who you didn't want to know that you were gay going out um, to the theater that night. So, um, so the geography of Philadelphia, I think, uh, created some differences. And I guess another big difference is the, the level of police repression in Philadelphia may well have been greater than in other cities and especially during the Rizzo era. Yeah. We were starting to talk about some of the harassment gays faced in this era, 1945 to 72. Do you think that during this era, it was harassment worse than uh, than the areas before and even after? Was well, that too is a, it's a difficult question because there's just not been enough research. Uh, I didn't do um, a full job on the pre-1945 period and there hasn't been any other research that I'm aware of on what things were like before 1945. Um, a historian of gay New York argues that the middle third of the 20th century was far worse than either the first third or the third third. Um, and we that may not be surprising to um, many people because the McCarthy era was such a repressive period for a variety of um, dissident groups in American society, communists, Jews, and others, um, that uh, the campaign against uh, against gays um, may well have been uh, may well have increased the level of harassment more than in other periods. Um, but it's really difficult to say. It certainly seems that certain forms of harassment declined after 1972. Uh, bars were not routinely raided in the ways that they were before. There seems to have been less of a relationship between the bar owners and organized crime and the police. The system of payoffs mm -hmm. that was in operation in the 50s and 60s seems to have um, declined. Uh, street violence may have declined, although that that um, I would want someone to research really before making making a claim. But I think some forms of harassment continued and it, it tended to be against the most marginalized uh, parts of the gay and lesbian community. So uh, I think a drag queen, uh, transgendered person walking down the certain streets in Philadelphia mm -hmm. still would be subject to verbal right. and potentially physical attacks in much the same way that they would have been um, in the 50s or 60s. Right. Uh, you were talking about some of the neighborhoods that were attractive to gays, but what about some of the, the better known establishments within their neighborhoods? Are they still active, the ones back in this era as now? Some of them, um, there, there were, as far as I could determine, uh, at any one point in time, um, maybe 30, 40, 50 uh, commercial establishments that catered to lesbians and gay men in my period. Um, very few that uh, had a primarily lesbian clientele. The, the most famous of those was a bar commonly known as Rusty's, but I think officially known as Barone's Variety Room. And it was in the 13th and Locust uh, sort of vice district. Um, and that, that survived for, for decades as the most popular lesbian spot in Philadelphia. Uh, but it no longer exists. The The most popular gay male spots um, included Maxine's, which was a kind of high-end restaurant bar, um, uh, and uh, also the Westbury, um, which does still exist, uh, and the Allegro, which no longer exists. And some of them allowed dancing, others didn't. Some of them appealed to a, a jacket and tie crowd, mm -hmm. in the, certainly in the 50s, although the dress codes began to break down in the 60s as they did throughout American culture. Others were more um, 
uh, as some of my oral history narrators put it, democratic bars where everybody could walk in and they were more had more of the flavor of a of a neighborhood bar of any, of any kind. So there's great variety. Some bars cater to the black community. Um, among the ones that were mentioned to me um, most regularly, one was called Spider Kelly's, um, and um, uh, uh, there was one called Track Seven. Uh, there was one called the Ritz, um, and those tended to be. Uh, around Market Street. And uh, my narrators generally said that you know, through the 50s and 60s, there actually was a pretty stri strict racial dividing line mm -hmm. um, among the gay bars. So the white gay bars tended to be between Market and South, and the black gay bars tended to cluster along South or along Market. So incredibly enough, the patterns of racial segregation that were in evidence across American society in this period were also in evidence in the gay bars. I was going to ask you that, to, to uh -huh. find out if there was perhaps more tolerance among gays uh, of African-American descent and whites as the, in the general society. More tolerance. That too, it's a, it's a very difficult question. I, I think, again, yes and no. Uh, the churches were we might say hotbeds of homophobia. And to mm -hmm. the extent that the churches occupy a very important place in black communities, there was great trouble um, uh, from the pulpit. Now, at the same time, uh, if we look at the choir, uh, you know, I have many stories, right, of, of gay people being members of the choir, meeting other gay people through the choir, mm -hmm. um, finding partners through the choir, socializing with other gay people through the choir. So even just in the church, we could see um, different things uh, depending on whether you're talking about the sermon coming on Sunday or the, the, the more social elements. Um, a number of the black folks that I interviewed talked to me about um, how where they lived and where they socialized was affected by race. So um, many lived in the traditionally black sections of Philadelphia, West Philadelphia, um, for example, and North Philadelphia. Um, but left their home neighborhoods to go socialize. So went down to Market Street or South Street to socialize. Whereas white gays didn't really have to travel quite so far because mm. the congregation of gay bars was in their residential neighborhood, right? So that created very different dynamics. So you could say, well, maybe black gays left their, their neighborhoods because of the prejudices that they would have encountered there, mm. right? Um, so to that extent, um, we have to be careful about about thinking that the black community was necessarily more more tolerant. Interesting. What were and are some of the uh, more influential gay lesbian publications? Well, in in Philadelphia, the first uh, gay lesbian newsletters started coming out in 1960, 1961. And before that time, there had been nationally available gay magazines. And they were really of two types. There were political journals that came out typically monthly that were very text heavy, very serious, very political. Um, and then there were physique photography magazines that were gay men, really in many respects, gay men's versions of Playboy and Hustler. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but in the 1960s, so those existed in the 50s. In Philadelphia, the uh, gay movement newsletters started in 1960-61. They tended to be named for the organizations. So the Mattachine Society Newsletter or the Janus Society Newsletter. But then in 1964, Philadelphia got its first gay magazine. It was called Drum, uh, founded by a local gay activist named Clark Pollock. And Drum became the most widely circulating gay um, movement magazine in the country. So more widely circulating than all of the earlier ones that had existed in the 50s. And 
it seems pretty clear the reason it was so popular it had tens of thousands of subscribers around the country. The reason it was so popular was it combined elements of the physique magazines. So the front cover would have a sexy photograph, but inside the covers would be the political commentary and features that were characteristic of the other type of, of magazine. And so um, it was a, a smart marketing device, um, get, getting a lot of readers. But once they opened their pages, they would read political news, be educated about things happening around the country. Um, and, and that's why it became so successful. And it lasted for five years. Mark, um, let's talk a little bit about how gays at this time were treated in the print media and how much different it is today. Well, the print media had a great effect, I would argue, on lesbian and gay life. Uh, this was one of the ways that information about sexuality and about gays and lesbians circulated widely. And, um, and the news was not very good. Um, uh, it's important to say that, uh, that there was not silence in the media, which I think many people believe. Homosexuality was discussed in the media, oftentimes in coded ways, but in ways in which many readers could could see. Um, so uh, there were stories about that I uncovered in the 50s and 60s about uh, homosexual murders, um, sensational coverage about those. There were uh, half a dozen of those that I found uh, covered by city newspapers like the Enquirer and the Evening Bulletin. Um, coverage by medical experts in the area, Penn professors, temple professors who were doing everything that they could to treat homosexuals. One temple professor was conducting experiments using electroshock therapy um, that he was awarded for, uh, for these groundbreaking experiments, uh, shocking uh, gay patients um, when uh, homoerotic imagery was flashed on the screen and then removing the shock when hetero heterosexual imagery was shown on the screen. Um, and then there were a couple of times where there were sustained controversies in Philadelphia. Um, uh, one in the mid-1950s, uh, the Catholic Church in the region organized a campaign against naming the Delaware River's new bridge for Walt Whitman. And hundreds of letters poured into the Delaware River Port Authority. And so I read through the 1,500 letters sent to the Port Authority on the question of whether the bridge should be named for Whitman. And it was an explicitly anti-gay campaign. Mm -hmm. The argument was the bridge should not be named for Whitman because he was he was homoerotic or homosexual. But, but uh, there was no if you will, proof that Whitman was gay. Is that correct, or do we know? Well, there is there's actually a good amount of evidence, there, okay. um, as much as there can be evidence mm -hmm. for the 19th century, sure. of love letters that, that Whitman exchanged with other men. Um, his diaries pretty are, are very suggestive about that. At the time, this was just beginning to come to light. There was a biography that came out oh, okay. in the 50s uh, that was beginning to suggest this. Um, another, the, the other sustained media controversy in the 50s was when Frank Rizzo, uh, then a police captain uh, raided the city's beat coffee houses. Philadelphia had a small beat beatnik scene, mm -hmm. um, and he uh, Rizzo and the police commissioner ended up justifying the raids on the grounds that homosexuals were congregating in the coffee houses, and something had to be done to stop this. And since there were court suits about this, um, the the uh, the media covered it for um, for months. Then in the 60s, I'll just mention two, two media, two interesting media footnotes. The Philadelphia Magazine in 1962 published in, uh, the, it, the city's first expose of gay life. It was called The Furtive Fraternity. And then five or six years later, a companion piece appeared called The Invisible Sorority. And this was, I think, the first uh, uh, sustained treatment, not just a short news article about a single event, but an effort to pre present a broader look at gay and lesbian life in the city. 
Interesting. Uh, before, earlier in the program, you were talking about some of the uh, groups. Now, the political activist groups in the, in the gay and lesbian movement had to be very important as catalysts. Can you tell us a little about some of those groups? Right. Well, in Philadelphia, the first group was called the Mattachine Society. It was a branch of the national organization, and they can have meetings, uh, tried to educate themselves, had speakers um, from the local medical and legal community. Um, they uh, changed their name in 1962 to the Janus Society, Janus uh, named after the Roman god, the two-faced mm -hmm. Roman god, um, and they began to become more active. So in 1964, they're the group that put out Drum Magazine, the controversial magazine um, that I mentioned earlier. Um, in 1965, the local Janus Society began uh, cooperating with groups from other cities to engage in civil rights demonstrations. So um, there were annual demonstrations on the 4th of July at Independence Hall. Um, it ended up being called the annual reminder once it became a regular thing, where 50 to 100 um, gay and lesbian activists would march holding signs in favor of gay rights. Um, also in 1965, I discovered that the Janus Society uh, supported a sit-in that occurred at a coffee shop called Dewey's near Rittenhouse Square, where um, uh, cross-dressing and gay patrons had been denied service. Um, and there was an effort to protest by sitting in at the coffee shop. Ultimately, it was successful. So um, the Janus Society was really the most active group in the 60s. Um, later in the 60s, there was a group called the Homophile Action League that also participated in demonstrations and began to lobby the city government and the state government for a law reform. All of these groups sponsored speakers, um, tried to educate the public, spoke to community groups, um, promoted positive images in the media, published their own newsletters and, and magazines. And then after the Stonewall Riots of 1969, there were a whole new set of, of groups and publications that emerged. Right. I guess uh, just in closing here, uh, Mark, let me ask you from the uh, lessons that you learned and that you shared with us from your book, what should people take uh, from your book in terms of knowledge about gay rights from this era? What would you like them to remember? Well, I guess um, uh, there, are several, there, are, there are several lessons I think that we can learn from this history. One is that we should recognize that lesbians and gay men have been around for a long time. Um, and that they have made major contributions to the life of the city um, and the life of this city, Philadelphia, as well as other cities and other regions um, across the United States and around the world. I guess that's the main lesson. Um, I also would hope that readers would come away with a sense that the gay and lesbian community is diverse and is internally complicated. And so lesbian history is not the same as gay men's history. White gay and lesbian history is not the same as black gay and lesbian history. And that when we look at change over time and the kind of changes over time that I trace, um, we have to be sensitive to those types of differences. Um, so those, those would be the central well, messages and lessons. Well, thank you so much, uh, Mark. Your book is fascinating. It's City of Sisterly and Brotherly Loves, and it's published by our friends at Temple University and written by today's guest, Dr. Mark Stein. I'm Carl Hallecker, and this is Book Chat.